when a, when a leader shows their vulnerability, shows their how they've failed, how they've learned, how they've grown, they become so much more inspiring because people feel close to them. And if you think about, you know, the world's most successful, most transformational leaders, they've all been people who others feel they know. They may not have ever have even met them, but they feel they know them because that leader has shared something of who they are with them. And you, you can't share who you are without sharing your vulnerability. Because when you share your success and your strength and your achievements, you're not sharing who you, who you are under that. And so I think vulnerability is a key element in bonding and creating connection and inspiring people to feel like they could do that too. They could follow in your footsteps. They could be like you. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Cardavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. This is episode 51 with Remy Blumenfeld from the UK. The title is Dancing in the Moment, Strategies for Leadership, Business, and Personal Growth. Remy is a fascinating person. He started his first business a number of years ago and then sold it for a very high multiple, the world's largest production company. Today, he's a coach and advisor who works exclusively with founders and owners of creative agencies and content-focused businesses, such as film, television, music, advertising, and publishing. And he especially loves working with owners who are focused on growing their businesses for sale. Remy has so many fascinating ideas on leadership, business growth, and even personal growth. He's going to talk about the ways that vulnerability is so vital in leadership. He's going to talk about some strategies for growing your business for sale. He's also going to talk about how important it is to have a holistic definition of success and how critical it is that you define success for yourself. So get ready to learn from a master and walk away with very tangible ideas to grow your leadership and your business. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking, and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are back here for the Impact Leadership Podcast. We have another international guest today. And it's interesting, Craig, you know, we started off and we hadn't had anybody international in the last six weeks. It's been about, seems like two thirds international guests, which is fantastic. So Remy Blumenfeld is coming to us from the UK. And he is one of the world's leading business coaches and advisors. And he's got a great niche because he focuses on our people in the creative sector. So this Mm. is film, television, advertising, media, publishing. That That is his realm. He's contributed over 50 articles to Forbes. He's been listed by the independent newspaper as one of the 20 most influential LGBTQ people in the United Kingdom. He's been in the New York Times, Sunday Times, Forbes. And he's got a really fascinating story. We'll get more from him about he was working in television, loses his job almost on the street and kind of, the, you know, rises from the ashes to build a business, <laughs> sold it to one of the largest uh, production companies in the world. And now he helps people in the creative world and the content world grow their business and helps them avoid and learn from the mistakes he's made over the years. So hmm. welcome, Remy, and we're excited about this conversation. Yeah. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome to have you. And am I right, Remy, is your company named Vitality? So Vitality Guru is my coaching practice, and Remy Blumenfeld is where the coaching that I do online sits. So it's kind of, I have two, I have two faces on the web. One is Vitality Guru, and the other is Remy Blumenfeld. Awesome. Well, give everybody a little bit of the Remy story that brings <laughs> us here today. Well, I, I guess I ended up as a coach because 
I've been running my own creative businesses for years. And when you get to a certain level in any business, what you end up doing is coaching. You end up coaching <laughs> leaders who work with you. The only problem is they didn't ask for coaching and you don't know how to do it. <laughs> right. So I was in this interesting situation of being a champion, holding people accountable, um, effectively doing all the work of a coach without having had any training as a coach mm. and with people who didn't really want it. So I decided it would be useful to get some coaching training since that was now my job description as a leader. And I trained as a coach and I, I, I loved that journey. It was so exciting to be working with some of the world's leading coaches. And then I ended up with an American-based group called CTI, the Coactive Training Institute, and I trained there. And then I came back to working with the same people I'd been leading for years who didn't actually want to be coached, and it was no fun. So what I thought is, why don't I actually coach people who want to pay me for coaching? Yeah. And um, Good instead, idea. Of be, instead of being stuck just with people in the TV and film business, which is what I'd been working with before, I now coach everyone in the creative sector. And that was, mm. that was when I set out my stall. Um, and then I realized that that was, although I thought that was a very small niche, creative sector, actually, it wasn't quite defined enough. So I've now defined my niche over the past few years, and I just only coach founders of content-driven companies. So mm. people who run studios, um, game studios, uh, publishing companies, music labels, people, anybody whose business is ideas is my client. Oh, that sounds and, great. Um, yeah, it's really, it's fun for me. It's interesting for them. And what I get to do is share all my learning and, as you were saying in the intro, all my failings and fails and, and mistakes so you don't have to make them uh, yourself. But also, I share the learning of all my clients with each other uh, mm. anonymously, of course. Right. Well, you know, I, I want to hear more about your journey and your business. But one thing fascinated me, Remy, you did something that is almost unheard of, sadly, which is you were leading a business. And you realized your role was to coach and said, I don't really know how to coach, so I'm going to learn how to coach. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever heard a leader of an organization say, I'm going to go learn how to coach because I know that's my job. They know it's their job, but they say, I'm going to figure this out. So I think I applaud you for doing mm -hmm. something that very few leaders ever do. Well, thank you. And I encourage you to do it if you're listening and you're in that position because it's an incredibly rewarding journey. And you'll get a lot of shocks and surprises along the way. <laughs> I think, um, you know, for me, the biggest learning was that a coach is not somebody who solves your problems. <laughs> and I think often leaders think that the solution to someone's problem is to tell them the solution. And, <laughs> uh, and that's, not, that's not coaching. Um, so even when as a coach, you kind of think you maybe possibly know what a solution would be, you never tell it to the person. You, you have to ask them the questions that lead them to that door, have them open that door and find out for themselves the solution that you hoped might be behind that door all along. But if when you say to somebody, what you should do is this, that's not coaching and, and no one likes to be told that. So, you know, I said at the beginning that I was in a weird situation of coaching my team, uh, my senior members of my team without their permission. But the other thing I was doing was, you know, just bad practice. I was telling them what to do, helping them fix things, rescuing, none of which is good coaching practice. So I was being a bad coach. No wonder they didn't want to be coached. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's awesome that you actually took it seriously. You know, the, the, the role of leader is something that somebody can kind of step into or they can own, right? Clearly, you decided to own it. Yeah, I decided to own it because I, I really enjoy that. The coactive model is called dancing in the moment. So you dance, <laughs> you dance in the moment with your client. And, and in a way, what could be more fun with that? To be dancing in the moment with a creative, resourceful leader who's just stuck in a way that you were perhaps stuck at one point. It's mm. so much easier always to help other people solve their problems than it is to solve one's own. Oh, yes. <laughs> Well, Remy, tell us a little bit more about your business journey. You, you had a business, you were, you know, in seemingly rising in your industry and then hit a cliff 
and then you start your own business and that becomes a huge success. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, I was quite lucky to have things which often happen to people later in life happen to me quite young. So um, I wasn't that successful when the company that I was working for went out of business overnight. I was, I was still in my 20s when that happened. So, yeah, so I had been on TV in the States and I had my own show and I then came to back to the UK and I was running a show that I really loved. And then overnight, the channel that I was on was bought by Rupert Murdoch. Of course, everyone at the top knew that was happening, but none of us on the ground knew that that was in the offing. We read about it in the paper the next day and suddenly, you know, none of us had a job. Mm. And what I did know was that I had ideas and I had uh, people who I knew in the industry. And so I just started typing up my ideas from home and sending them in to the people I knew. And I must have sent 100, 200 ideas. And that's quite a lot of TV ideas because it's not just how about this. It's like each one was at least a couple of pages with some illustration. Wow. And all of them were returned with different variations of the same note, which said, thank you very much, but this idea isn't quite right for us right now. And I knew it wasn't the idea because I knew what made a good idea. So I figured it must be me. And I was right because no broadcaster, no corporation wants to trust that much money and responsibility with somebody typing from home. You know, and back then I, it was actually typing. So it wasn't even like you could, it wasn't even computer generated. It was like I typed oh, wow. the letter, I put it in the mail and I sent, that's how long I was in my 20s. It was, you know, it was the 90s. I was in my 20s and I was typing these letters and they were getting rejections in the mail. So I knew the ideas were pretty good and I didn't think the people I was sending them to actually hated me. So I thought it must be something else. <laughs> and what I figured out was that it was, they couldn't trust that much responsibility with a single person typing mm. from home. And so I launched a limited company called Brighter Pictures and I basically sent out the same ideas again. But this time, miraculously, um, instead of my hit ratio being 900 to zero, it started being like, you know, 10 to one. So oh, wow. I'd send out 10 ideas and I'd get one yes. And pretty quickly, that small company in my bedroom, which to begin with was still just me, became a larger company. And, you know, people these days talk a lot about defining your niche. But for us back then, it was really simple because we we're defined by who we were and where we were living and the time we were in. So we were um, living in Brixton, which is kind of a rough area of London. You've probably seen the Brixton riots back in the 90s. And even till recently, it's been a place where there's more crime proportionally than other parts of London. Um, so that was kind of on the edges of society. Um, we were young. We were in our early 20s. Uh, and we were kind of on the edges of society ourselves. I was a gay man. I was Jewish in London, which is not a particularly Jewish <laughs> place. I mean, there's only 300,000 Jews in the whole of the UK. So I was gay. Wow. I was Jewish. I was living in London. I was young. We made programs about the edges of society. It's as simple mm. as that. We made the first black music show on British TV. We made the first Asian pop culture on, show on, India, on uh, British TV. We made the first gay dating show on British TV. So... Of course, I could have made other kind of programs, but I don't think I'd have been trusted to make them because those programs that we were making were very much about who we were and where mm. we were living and the time we were in. And we that. became quickly quite successful. Hmm. Wow, that's so good that you were able to understand who you are and bring that out rather than try to fit into somebody else's mold. And it's advice that really holds true today for anybody doing anything if it starts with something that you love mm -hmm. it may well end with recognition and reward if it starts with a quest for recognition and reward without it coming from a place of love it will never bring you joy it will never bring you lightness so at least if you're doing something you love um you know that that's already half the battle right because now you're spending your days being paid something to do something you love and uh, <laughs> Whereas, you know, how much money can you be paid to do something that really brings you down? So, so from, from the beginning, we were loving what we did. And eventually it caught on because although the world didn't know it back then, they were waiting for this kind of programming. And mm -hmm. it just, you know, we were in the right place at the right time. And wow. 
it was one of the reasons why we were attractive to our uh, the company that eventually bought us because we had a niche that they couldn't target because they weren't that they were a big global corporation they didn't have that um, insight into the edges of society that we had it wouldn't have been as natural for them to make the programming that we were ma making at the time hmm. that was ca that was catching on really quickly and I pretty much continued my career in TV exploring those edges uh, which later became the middle which is really the interesting thing because you know if you <laughs> if you think about it um, you know the, I guess gay marriage changed the world's perception of gay people in many ways and black music now dominates the charts <laughs> and Indian pop culture is everywhere. So all those things that we were doing that seemed very edgy became very commercial. Hmm. Well, you know, and the word that just came to mind, and I don't often use this word, Remy, because I'm not sure what it means, but it hit <laughs> me, which is courage. Because I, don't th I yeah. think courage is an outcome. More often it's a definition of someone must have had courage to do that, but I don't know that courage. I think to you, courage was vulnerability actually willing to just be who you are hmm. and to and to go into that space that was the edge i mean when you created that that was beyond the edges yeah probably but if i'd known that at the time i probably would have done it you know but i think when people talk about acts of bravery um it often didn't seem as brave as it was to the person at the time because if they'd known how deep the water was and how fast flowing they wouldn't have jumped in so I did what felt natural, and it's nice of you to say that it was courageous. I actually feel like I've become more courageous and more vulnerable through time, but at the time it just felt like I was doing what I knew best and what I could sell. Well, so courage, so <laughs> courage sounds better than ignorance is bliss. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does. And, and I think every, everything does involve some act of courage. Yeah. It's just does it seem it to one's self at the time maybe not well maybe that's that love and passion if you're in the and i do believe mm -hmm. that you know if i'm in my love and passion i'm more likely later when someone asks me about it to say what edge <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> did yeah, i miss it yeah 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 it i think i mean vulnerability is also interesting to me of course uh as a as a coach as a human being and i think it's another one of those interesting things that one can only often be vulnerable when one feels strong. You know, mm -hmm. In the moment of feeling vulnerable, yeah. one can't show one's vulnerability. When you feel vulnerable, you act defensive and you act protective. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, with a little time, you can then open up vulnerably on that area that you had to protect before. And so, mm -hmm. like with courage, I can see now that I was courageous. At the time, I couldn't really admit that even to myself. Well, let, let's talk a little more about vulnerability. It's a topic we talk about a lot. And what we, well, what Craig and I believe and what we've seen in our guests is 100% of the leaders have targeted vulnerability as a critical element in their leadership. And yet, at least in this country, it is not common. <laughs> um, right. and, yeah. and in fact, I don't know if you saw it, I'll add this, I haven't done a piece on it yet, but just at the end of last week, in our sports world, something came out because uh, a quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys came out and acknowledged that he's been struggling with depression. Mm. His brother committed suicide, and between that and COVID, he came out. And he said, "I've not, you know, I haven't had energy. I haven't been able to get out of bed. I haven't been working out." He did that on uh, National Suicide Prevention Day. Well, one of the newscasters on ESPN strongly criticized him and said he should never say things like that because he's a leader. That's almost the quote. He's the CEO of the team. Leaders don't do that was his message. Uh, gosh, that's so shocking. I, it, well, it's, you know, it's one of those I'm shocked but not surprised kind of thing. Um, so speak a little more to how you see vulnerability in leadership. Hmm. Well, where do I start? I think... <laughs> You know, in the end, leaders are first and foremost human. So, <laughs> okay, we're done. That's it. You nailed it. <laughs> You're the second one from the UK that said that. Awesome. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay, well, so I didn't realize I was 
fitting myself into a format that you've established. No, 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 no. no. Awesome. I, I love, love hearing it. it. Yeah. Okay. Multiple people saying I, the same thing is awesome. But, well, it, it may sound banal, but the truth is whatever audience you're looking at, we, you're talking about human beings. And I think people often forget that, you know, whether it's sportsmen or whether it's leaders or whether it's a particular niche that you're trying to target, if you talk just to the role, if you talk just to surgeons or just to baseball players and don't talk to the human, you're missing the whole trick. So leaders are human. And when we project strength only, when we project um, perfect, when we project flawless, when we project distant, we, we push people away and we are unable to inspire. And if you can't inspire, you can't lead. What, what inspires us as human beings is that factor which is so critical in producing TV programs, which is relatability. If you have a TV program that is just about a topic, you'll get people who are enthusiastic about that topic. But if you, get a pro, if you create a TV show that is relatable on a human level, whereas a human being, you watch it and you think, that could be me, or I wish that was me, or thank goodness that's not me, because you're connecting on a human level, hmm. you can get amazing audiences around the world. It's, it's, it's the transformational quality in content is relatability. And the same is true with a leader. You know, as a leader, if you're not relatable, if your team don't recognize the human in you, then you're being led by a computer. It's, it's, it's a meaningless relationship. Whereas if, when a, when a leader shows their vulnerability, shows their, how they've failed, how they've learned, how they've grown, they become so much more inspiring because people feel close to them. And if you think about you know, the world's most successful, most transformational leaders, they've all been people who others feel they know. They may not have ever have even met them, but they feel they know them because that leader has shared something of who they are with them. And you, you can't share who you are without sharing your vulnerability. Because when wow. you share your success and your strength and your achievements, you're not sharing who you, who you are under that. And so I think vulnerability is a key element in bonding and creating connection and inspiring people to feel like they could do that too. They could follow in your footsteps. They could be like you. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we were talking about being on the edges. And I think this is a real issue for, pe for anybody who feels marginalized, whether it's because you're gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, whether it's because you're black or Asian or another ethnic minority, whether you, in whatever way, feel less than because you don't conform to the norms of society's values around what society values the most, it's very tempting to try and seem perfect. It's like the perfect armor against feeling vulnerable is to seem perfect, to be better than other people. The trouble is when you're perfect, when you're better than other people, no one relates to you. So the problem that you had in the beginning, which is one of feeling other, feeling different, feeling separate from other people is just exacerbated. And it's such a tempting suit of armor to put on when we feel vulnerable to be, to be perfect. Like I'll bypass the vulnerability by putting on this suit of armor that shows everyone that I'm perfect and flawless and better than everyone. But then time and time again, that suit of armor just repels people further. So hmm. yeah, vulnerability brings people in. If you, if you think of anybody you know who when they meet people, I want you to do this actually, both of you, think of somebody in your life who when they meet people, other people love them. When they go to a party, people open up. When they leave a group of people, they end up with lots of numbers on their phone. Somebody who other people just love and want to be around, and they're inevitably people who are deeply flawed. They're never perfect people. Perfect people have very lonely lives. <laughs> uh, they do, and, and you know, uh, I fell into that trap of many gay men of feeling like if I'm, if I come across as accomplished and perfect and 
people will like me, people will approve of me, people won't be able to criticize and judge me if I seem like I've got everything together. Mm. And of course, the reverse is true. <laughs> the more of a mess you seem, the more vulnerable you're able to be, the more other people gravitate towards you. Wow. I haven't mastered it yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> wow, that is so good, Remy. I, that that really points out some some things that I know that I need to work on. And um, gosh, what what good stuff. So when you're talking with the the founders of creative agencies, is that one of the things that you're really helping them deal with as well? Because oftentimes, you know that that role of CEO or what have you oftentimes that is that place where they feel like they have to present this, this image of themselves. Yeah, well, totally. So I've, I've created a nine part course, which is specifically for mm. founders of content companies. And throughout the course, it's about who are you being? How are you showing up? Mm. How, how are you occurring to other people? Cause I think founders like the rest of us often just want to be told what to do and how to fix things as though it were, a manual that you, but the truth is everything starts with me. Everything starts with you and the energy that you're projecting, uh, how you're attracting other people or repelling them all has a huge effect. And the thing about founders that's really interesting is they usually became founders because they didn't like working for other people. Often they didn't do well in institutions like school or university, but not always. Sometimes they didn't even go there because it was so anathema to them, but they're generally people who, have a vision and want to be in charge and don't want other people to interfere too much, if at all. <laughs> right. And so um, that's the kind of personality type and that's the kind of experience they've had. And when you are that way, as we're discussing, when you act like I'm fine, I don't need any help, guess what? No one gives you any help. <laughs> so, um, so they tend to be people who have, through their own actions and other people's response to that, become quite isolated. and they have a story very often, which is, um, I don't need help. I don't want help. I've got this far on my own. And mm. whenever I've asked for help, people have let me down. Mm. And whenever I've accepted help, it's ended badly. So I am going to do it all on my own. Wow. But, but again, you know, and I, I, asked them, I asked them the same question I'm going to ask you, which is, if you think about the people you know who are most successful, are they people who do it all on their own or are they people who are amazingly <laughs> good at getting everyone to do everything? Yes. And they tend to be people who are really great at getting everyone to do everything so that all they have to do is be them. Now, that's quite a scary job description to end up with. <laughs> <laughs> right? All you need to do is be you. And I think often we're afraid of that, you know, because who am I to just be me all day? You know, who's going to really want that? Surely it's because I'm good at this and I'm good at that and I can do this and I can do that. But the, for founders, particularly of larger companies, their biggest job is to be them, be themselves with shareholders, be themselves with investors, be themselves with their team, inspire their leaders. That's all they should have time to do. Um, rather than doing other stuff to fill that space. So to answer your question, yes, a lot of work that I do with founders is around where can you get support? How can you create a structure so that you have time and space to just do what you love and do best? And how can you ask for help when you need it at every level? Because when you get to a level of wanting to sell your business, having the right board, the right advisors with the right networks, the right leaders in each domain so that you're not doing it all yourself. It's all crucial. And if you're somebody who says, I don't want any help and I can't accept it, you're not going to get those kind of people mm. coming to work for you because you quickly get a reputation as somebody who is unhelpable. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Impact Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Cartevera. Cartevera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartevera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartevera.com. Welcome back. 
You know, it's interesting, your second question, Remy, to Craig and I, I don't know if it's cultural. I mean, it certainly has a lot. I would say exclusively has to do with how you define success. Because in the United States, there are a lot of people that people would say are very successful. I would not, but they would, and they might even self-assess as successful, <laughs> but they do it all themselves. They are burning themselves out. They are living a medicated life mm. because they have strapped their business on their back. They have strapped them and they go out and succeed monetarily. I mean, that's usually the measure that they're using, but their life's a mess. You know, their relationships yeah. are a mess. They, their families are a mess. Their health is a mess. So I think that second question is trickier in terms of mm-hmm. who's got, got the package of success. Absolutely. They've been willing to ask for help and build a team, et cetera. But uh, there's a lot of individual success mindset in the U.S. No, I totally get that. And we should talk a little about that because it's an interesting and rich area. I mean, on the Vitality Guru website, it's, it's really simple. It's vitality.guru. I have a wheel of life questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And w- what it does is it assesses how successful you think you are right now in every area of your life. And you won't be surprised to know that it is not just career and finance, right? <laughs> right. It is, it is also health and fitness because, you know, I was laughing. I shouldn't have been. But when you said uh, there are a lot of these really successful people who are self-medicating, I'm thinking, well, I mean, if you're self-medicating, isn't that a definition that you're not successful? <laughs> I, I mean, it's, right. it's you know, it, so... For me, that certainly would be. So there's health and fitness. There's fun travel and adventure because although COVID has put a stop to fun travel and adventure for now, I think a life of 70-odd years with no fun travel and adventure wouldn't be a very successful That would life. suck. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's so strange, you know, because I had all these tenets about what a successful life looked like, what a successful relationship looked like, and – all of them have been completely thrown out the window by COVID. Like one of my big things was it's you'll always be happy, or at least I will, if I have three things to look forward to, right? Something in my personal life, something in my work life, and a vacation. If I've got three <laughs> things to look forward to, I don't have anything in my personal life to look forward to. I have nothing in my work life to look forward to, and I have no vacations planned. So, you know, that that's out the window. And then the other thing I always thought was that relationships are only sustainable if you're not trying to be everything to your partner like you can't be 24 7 best friend gym buddy coach colleague helper carer nurturer and intimate partner with someone it just doesn't work of course that's changed with covid too i mean i have been (laughs) i have been locked locked in a house with a partner who used to be just my partner and now is you know everything else as well so all of these things. And then I also thought variety was so important. Like, you know, don't just expect that you can sit in one room for six months and be happy. <laughs> but here we are. Look, we're oh, making well. the most of it. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is called resilience, right? Yeah. Yeah. Instead of redefining what, uh, what success and what. Wow. Success. But, so, but to your we, point about success, I just feel like it has to be, has to be more holistic. It has to be all about, it can't just be about money and finance. Absolutely. I, I just keep looking back. And if I look at that wheel and I, I say, you know, if I were to put values to each one, because I don't think the scales are the same, right? In your relationships, to me, that's where the joy of life comes in. And so I would put that on a 20 point scale versus, you know, a 10 point scale or five point scale for some of the other things to say, you know, this is that much more important than some other areas. And yet, what's the first thing that drops when people start pushing towards that financial success? They burn up the relationships. Well, so I mentioned that I was quite lucky in having things happen early to me in life. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, when, I was, when I was 30, uh, doctors thought I was so sick that I wouldn't survive. So they actually mm-hmm. let my Irish Terrier, a dog called Sam, sleep the night in a national health hospital with me because they didn't think I was going to see the morning. Now, I didn't wow. know that that was the sign that they were giving me, but that was the sign they were giving me. 
And needless to say, miraculously, I'm still here. But like you said, in those last days and weeks, what was really clear to me was that nothing I'd achieved, no money that I had or didn't have, my home, my car was completely unimportant to me <laughs> compared with who I loved mm. and who loved me. Yeah. And that was something that I knew intellectually before I had to face death at 30. But wow. I didn't know it internally. I hadn't experienced it emotionally. I hadn't felt it in my body with that clarity. I mm. knew it as an idea. It made sense. It made sense, but I was still chasing all this stuff. And, you know, there's a fantastic book written by a woman called Bronnie Ware. And Bronnie Ware wrote a book called Five Regrets of the Dying. And the reason that mm. she knew about the regrets of the dying was that she spent 20 years caring for people who were dying as a palliative care nurse. And what she noticed holding the hands of men and women who were on their last days was they all had the same regrets. I wish I hadn't spent so much time at the office. Mm. I wish I'd spent more time with the people I love. I wish I'd had more fun and laughed more. Mm. I wish I'd been truer to my own purpose and not tried to please other people. So we can be pretty much certain, again, as humans, that when we get to that place, I was lucky, like I said, to have got to it age yeah. 30. Wow. But when the rest of us get to it, age 70 or 80 or 90, those are going to be our regrets. So yeah. why not avoid them? Why not, <laughs> like, right? <laughs> right. I mean, It seems so it, simple. <laughs> right, but if those are human regrets, it makes perfect sense. I don't want to have them. Right. Wow. And I, I don't think most of us do. So spending time doing things we love, connecting profoundly with the people we love, has to come into our own definition of success. Yeah. But what I do with all clients is at the very beginning and at various stages in our journey, I get them to define for themselves and for me, because I want to see it as their coach, what success looks like to them in all these different areas of their mm. life. Because, you know, we can make decisions about career and finance, which actually have a really adverse effect on the other domains in our life. So, so before you decide to launch a $20 billion company with locations around the world, look at how that's going to adversely affect all the other areas of your life, from your relationships to your health, because those things have to end up defining success to us. Because if you're not alive, what does success mean? You know, <laughs> and I know that sounds very obvious, but I'm a great believer in affirmations, saying mm -hmm. every day to myself what I know to be true, yep. to counterbalance the viruses in my brain that tell me all the stuff that isn't true that my saboteur is projecting. So I always start each day by saying, you know, I'm strong, I'm resourceful, I'm creative. I realized the other day I forgot to say I'm alive. Right? <laughs> But without that, there are no others. So before wow. you start, you know, thinking that health and fitness are not important, just recognize that if you're not there to say it, all the other affirmations don't really mean much. So true. Wow. Remember, you've touched on something, and I'm going to see if <clears throat> I can connect the dots on them. You talked about this, this belief system that people have because they're the other. And what I've learned over the decades is that pretty much everybody thinks they're another. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I remember having a conversation at a high school reunion and, and opening up and being vulnerable about how I felt like I was an outsider, mm -hmm. but I didn't have any apparent outsider or other traits. And this person who I saw as one of the ins said, Jeff, I had the same issue. And I started talking to people at that reunion and realized that all these people that I thought were, had it together they were terrified too because they felt like they're the other. So talk about the role of these other beliefs and how they start to inform my behaviors around often that wheel of life. So I've got those beliefs that I've got to prove myself because I don't belong. I've got to prove myself and I've got to do it in an objective way that everybody can see, mm. which is dollars or status. Well, it all comes back to whether you're living your life for yourself or you're living your life for other people. And yeah. it's, it's really powerful to connect, I think, sometimes with yourself in the future because 
yourself in the past, age 20, knew lots of things, including the fact that you're very old and about to die, you know, age 45 or 50. But that <laughs> your, your, yourself, age 20, had all sorts of ideas based on your experience at high school and being other and being driven by the need for approval and affirmation and recognition, all of which are understandable, but they're not really the qualities of wisdom that we hope to exit this world with. So what I would invite you to do is to have a conversation with yourself 20 years from now. Have a conversation with yourself age 60 or 70. And just be with yourself age 70 and ask them what they advise. What would they do? What do they suggest? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we're all caught between our youthful versions of ourselves and death. And the closer we get to death, the hope is the wiser we'll be. And I think, you know, it, there are many 75-year-olds who are not very wise, but we all hope that we, when we get to that place, will be lighter and, more, and, and wiser. So just having a conversation with yourself 20 years in the future is a really great way to assess your priorities because nine times out of 10, they say the things that we sort of know but just are not acting on. Like your health is your most important thing. Your relationship to your most important thing. You're never going to be as vital as you are now, so take care of yourself. <laughs> um, money and success are really unimportant to you. They may be important to other people, but they're not important to you. And mm -hmm. connecting with those things that, you know, the, the advertising world is always full of great slogans about, you know, the things that money can't buy. But the truth is money cannot buy connection. Money cannot buy Romance, it cannot buy friendship, it cannot buy intimacy, it cannot buy, can't even buy time. <laughs> I think this is so interesting with COVID, the, the way we've all had to kind of reassess our relationship to time. Because before COVID, there really was this huge inflation of the currency of busy. You know, being busy meant you were successful, meant you were being paid for your time, being busy meant you were in demand, being frantically, madly, crazy busy meant that you were successful to the world. But to, in reality, what being mad, crazy, busy meant was you didn't have time for yourself. You didn't have time for the people you love. You didn't have time for the passions and interests that really bring you joy. So it was a very inflated currency, but we were all flashing it. You know, it was impossible to say, I'm not busy without being thought of as a failure. Well, now no one's busy, right? <laughs> no one's busy. So we have to reevaluate what really matters in life, which is how we spend our time. You know, I've, I called my first coaching practice a thousand months. Um, and I called it a thousand months for a very simple reason, which is the average human life in America today is 71 and a half years, which equals a thousand months. So since I'm coaching humans, I thought, I'll call it a thousand months. But of course, people ask me, why do you call it a thousand months? And I told them, and they got so depressed, I never heard from them again. <laughs> Don't show people their mortality. Yeah, no, because it's just terrifying to realize I've got a thousand months. Because, you know, most of my clients were not newborn babies. They were people in middle age who had 300 months left. Right. 400 months left. So make the most of it. Why would you not hire Remy if, if that's the case? Well, I changed it to, to be like I thought, instead of selling the problem, sell the solution. So vitality is what you hope to fill your life with. Right. And it's not just vitality of mind and body and spirit. And of course, financial abundance is great. But just back to your original point, I think we all have to be concerned about creating a game we want to play. And if we create a game that's called creating financial abundance, then that's wonderful. Play that game. If you win, it doesn't mean you're a success. If you lose, it doesn't mean you're a failure, but you're having fun playing the game of financial abundance. Oh, so good. Right? Nice. But, but otherwise, we get trapped in the game is playing us because you're now driven to mad, crazy, busy, playing a game which you don't recognize as a game uh, to make lots of money. If you're 
playing a game to impress other people with lots of money, but it's bringing you no joy, no fun, no mm. time for yourself. That's not a fun game. That's not a useful game. Wow. Oh. So a couple things flashed through my mind. I was, I'm in the middle of listening to a book called Titan, which is about John Rockefeller. Mm. And he's a fascinating man. I mean, he, I think he, he earned some of the dark, the deep criticism that he has gotten in, in terms of his business practices. But it's an interesting paradox because his game was about making money and building wealth. It wasn't about spending money. He only gave away money. He did not spend a lot of money. But he increased incredible wealth in the business side, but he also seems to have done a really good job of spending time with his family. Like he knew how to take time off and he was very dedicated father and got rave reviews in terms of how he was as a father. Now in terms of if you weren't doing business with him, not such great reviews. Um, but That's what Carnegie was too. He took off three months, you know, during the summer, went back to, to Scotland. A lot of them, a lot of those leaders at that turn of the century did that. Yeah. Uh, so there's something I want to talk about, Remy. You've brought up this phrase a lot, and I find it in, not a phrase, but a concept. And I noticed on your site, it's the, the thing you listed number one, which is about increasing the quality of your relationships. Mm. And I don't think enough people think about that, but I think that is some of the greatest pain that people are dealing with. Yeah. So talk about a little more deeply the role that you see in building, enhancing the quality of our relationships in our life, mm. not just personally, but professionally. Well, gosh, I don't think we can talk about professionally and personally in the same breath because I think it's, I mean, it comes back to the fact that, look, we are, we are human. When we die, our biggest regret is that we didn't have deeper and more profound relationships and we didn't spend more time and energy on those. So from a personal perspective, that's really important. That's, that's not, I think work relationships, professional relationships are by their very nature transactional. Right. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that in the game of advancement, success, career. Of course, that's fine. It's about what can we do for each other? How can we help each other? And if it's fun, then we don't even need to think about the fact that we're helping each other because it's fun. So that's one domain. This, the area of personal relationships is like it's just a whole different currency. It's the currency of value and meaning in our lives, which if we don't, Whatever we, whatever we invest in is what grows in life. You know, whatever you focus on expands. So if you're only focusing on health and fitness, you, you shouldn't be surprised that you have no results in the area of finance and career. And if you only focus on finance and career, you should have no surprise that you're not actually having very deep and meaningful relationships. So you have to recognize in the first place that who we love and who loves us is what brings us joy and connection as human beings. It's what makes us feel okay about being ourselves. It's what makes us feel joyous. It's what makes us feel related. So it's, it's hugely important. And you have to invest in those relationships in order to have them because other people are just like us. I mean, so much of coaching is about helping us to understand that whatever we're feeling, whatever we're experiencing, the other person, whoever that other person is in the conversation, is feeling the same thing as a human being. It may not be identical to us, but you know your story about high school. You went to high school. You went back to your reunion and shared with people how you felt like an outsider. And when you said that, you probably felt, by definition, an outsider is someone who's alone and outside. And until you shared it, you didn't realize everyone else felt outsider mm -hmm. as well. Everyone else felt alone. And, and this is so true in, in all our relationships. They're, all, they're so often about mirroring, and often they're mirroring something that's going on exactly for us. You know, you've never seen a relationship, I'm sure, I certainly haven't, where in a, in a domestic partnership, one person is joyous and self-expressed and feels valued and loved, um, and the other person doesn't. So. It, these things are reciprocal. If you feel joyous and connected and related and appreciated and valued and loved, it's because the other person does too. And if you feel alone and isolated and lonely and cold and 
the other person feels it too. It's, it, mm. We all mirror each other. And I think, um, I mean, in a work situation, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the biggest learnings that I share with people is around how very often, particularly in situations where the power is not equal. Um, so think of a job interview, for instance, or uh, investor interview, anywhere where you feel like the other person has more power. Mm-hmm. Um, what we tend to do, and it's back to that original thing of projecting perfect rather than vulnerability. What we tend to do is we talk about ourselves mm. and we try and project us. So our hope in those meetings, it's a false and wrong hope, but our, our hope is that the other person will leave the meeting thinking, gosh, you, you know, he was wonderful. He was so intelligent. He was so bright. He was so creative. He was so experienced. He was so knowledgeable about me. That's what we, we go into. We go into interviews hoping that they'll think that about me. Um, but here's the thing. And you kind of mentioned this when we started, you know, when somebody's talking about themselves the whole time, it's really boring. <laughs> it's really who I would actually like to hire is not somebody who is bright and brilliant and creative and resourceful and knowledgeable and sucks all the energy from the room. Who I would actually, who I'd actually like to hire is somebody who makes me feel brilliant and powerful and vital and knowledgeable when they're with me. And in relationships, in, in domestic relationships, we often think, you know, marriages end when I'm bored of the other person or when I'm no longer in love with the other person or when yeah, tired of the other person. But actually, marriages end when I'm no longer excited by myself, when I'm with the other person. Ooh. <laughs> wow. And that's why interviews end too. Job interviews don't go well when the person who has the power to give you the job or the investment or whatever it is doesn't feel excited by themselves when they're with you. Hmm. If they feel you're great, uh, but they don't feel so great with you, they won't hire you. And you know, there's a lot of talk in corporate corporations about why is it that mediocrity tends to do so well in big corporations. Why do CEOs surround themselves quite often with people who don't outshine them? Mm. Well, that's the reason. That's the reason. We prefer to be with people who make us feel great about ourselves than we do to have people around us who actually make us question all those things about ourselves. Mm. Wow. So I, I tried to weave in the two. You said you were talking about work relationships and domestic relationships and that was an area of confluence, which I think, you know, there's a lot of things which cross over because we're, because we're human. And I, I will say, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, go on. No, I was just going to say, I, I, I differ a little bit in, in the way that I look at uh, professional, trans, uh, professional mm-hmm. relationships, because I, I don't see it as purely transactional. Yes, there's a transactional element in there, but I also look at it as if I'm not working with people that I want to hang out with, um, I'll fire a client. You know, I, I don't work with jerks. I'm not going to work with people that I, I don't want to work with. And I guess coming back to you, it's partly how I feel when I'm with that person. But the other side is, you know, I'm there to serve them as well. And it's, I guess there's a, yes, there's a transactional element to it. But I, I would say I look for the longer game with my professional relationships as well. I totally agree with that. But like, do you have a brother or sister? Mm-hmm. Two sisters. Well, you can't fire them. <laughs> right. And I have, I have intentionally made sure that I have a good relationship with them because I can't fire them. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what I meant. What I meant is in a work situation, we can choose who we work with and we choose, uh, people, who, we choose people who make us feel good about ourselves. And yeah. who we, but in, with your family and you know, close friends, friends from back when, you know, you have what you have and you have to work with it takes a different skill set. So mm. I agree with you, but, and you know, I have 
family members, I would love to have buy it, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I think I heard when you started explaining the difference to you, Remy, between personal and professional. Initially, when you're talking about transactional, I had a similar reaction to Craig, and then I realized that's not what you were saying, I don't think. Because what I realized, I think what I heard you say is professional is not, because I, in my professional world, have incredible personal relationships mm -hmm. in my professional realm, but they are personal relationships that happen to exist in a professional setting. <laughs> versus the true yeah. professional relationships that are only they're all they exist for is the professional part that I see it completely. So that's how I understood that difference. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, both of you are helping me make a point that I perhaps failed to make, which is a really important one for a lot of entrepreneurs. And it, and it is, it's essentially what you're saying. It's we get to choose who we work with. And even though, the nature of that relationship may on some level be transactional. I'm buying something, you're selling something, you're providing a service, I need the service. We still, because we're human, gravitate towards the people who we would like to have as friends. And very often what my clients fail to realize is that um, you know, they'll think it's better to have 20 clients than three. And my point is always this. It's as one person, you cannot serve 20 relationships. You just can't. You cannot have 20 meaningful client relationships because there just isn't the bandwidth, the time to have what I would think of as a successful relationship. So it's much better to have three clients who think that you're their only client. Much better to have three clients who you're in their life, they're in your life, you know everything about them, they know everything about you, you kind of would be friends anyway just so happens you met at work, than to have 20 people who feel, I quite like this person, but I hardly ever hear from them. Mm. And I think to service a client relationship in the way that you would a friendship, of course, it depends how you would service your friendship, but you know, <laughs> uh, to, to service a, a client relationship in the way you would service the friendship that I'm talking about means noticing the other person, seeing who they really are, paying attention to their interests, their passions, not just saying, I have a product, would you like to buy it? And we can have a drink afterwards. Yeah. It's actually, I would say the ratio of friendly exchange to client exchange should be about 10 to one. Like, mm -hmm. you know, one note saying, I saw this in, on TV, I thought you might like to watch it. One note saying, I loved what you just made and I'm just writing you a note to say the reasons why. One note saying, you know, I'm having dinner next Thursday on my boat, can you come? Before you say... <laughs> before you say, you know, and here's something I want you to buy. Because sometimes yes. people just think that a, a relationship with another human being can be serviced simply by those kind of transactional emails. And um, totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, I set up um, automated marketing for a lot of people and that that email marketing sequence, you know, even if you're, even if we're talking about automated and canned versus, you know, personalized, it's still value, 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 offer. Value, 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 offer. And in the same way, you know, in the relationships, how, how can I help you much more than um, what are you going to do for me today? Yeah. And I don't even know why I said that work relationships are transactional and, <laughs> and, and, and human relationships with other people aren't because I think quite often it can be quite transactional with family too, you know, because... <laughs> because yeah. <laughs> we, we have needs and wants as people and yeah. it's just it's just that that point you just made about balancing the needs and wants with the other stuff that actually is the lubrication of the relationship yeah wow. what can i offer you well i i love this remy and sadly we, we need to wrap this up something as you were saying just struck me a recent conversation relating to relationships i just moved to tampa Florida about a year ago and a few months ago I met a guy named Doug and we've only gotten together a couple times and the last time we had lunch two weeks ago he said you know Jeff since I met you I really thought I need to hire you <laughs> as a coach and I'm inside of thinking that's awesome here we go and he said but you know what I realized that 
I'd rather have you as a friend and I don't think I can do both. Oh, wow. And I, I realized I'd much, you have having you in my life as a friend means more to me than having you as a coach. <clears throat> and that to me was, you know, there's a moment of, huh, well, <laughs> <laughs> crap. Oh, well, <laughs> I, mean, I admit it. But to me, that speaks to the idea of relationships because he chose the relationship yeah. that he didn't believe could exist the same way if we had the transaction. Yeah. And I came away honored and saying, that's what a insightful, intuitive way to look at it for him. Yeah. Because he could have gone just to the transaction mode, but respecting the relationship and the, what can exist in that between two human beings. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, relationships are at the heart of it. Thanks so much for being here, Remy. Mm, I want to give you an opportunity. You've done a great job already on this. I want to make sure we don't miss anything. I I know you talked about your standout program, your nine-part course for your founders. You talked about your wheel of life. Um, You've got a couple websites. Wrap it up for us. How do people find you and reach out to you? Well, believe it or not, there is only in this world one Remy Blumenfeld. So if you can... can actually find your way to spelling it, you, you've pretty much found me. But I do have a website, which is vitality.guru. And I have another website, which is remy.blumenfeld. Oh, no, just Remy Blumenfeld. There's no dot. So Remy Blumenfeld or vitality.guru, and you'll find me. And I answer all my emails. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing from your audience and from you, of course. Well, Remy, we always ask a question at the end, and I'm going to choose this one very purposefully given what you do and who you do it with. Uh, I want to talk about movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so share with us a movie, a scene, a character, whatever piece it is that comes to you that really speaks to you about leadership. Hmm. Goodness. I'm expecting you something know. amazing here. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'm watching the TV series Billions at the moment. It's, uh, I think it's on HBO in the States. And to me, uh, it, it addresses so many of the themes that we've covered today around what really matters in life, uh, playing a game or being played by the game, um, what happens when you just lose sight of the bigger picture. Um, the main character in Billions is played by Paul Giametti, and awesome. he is in a S&M relationship with his wife, who is a coach, amazingly. <laughs> um, and he kind of, uh, there's a scene in it where he's actually talking about leadership because he's, he's running for district attorney, and his opposition has got sight of the tapes of him having an S&M sex scene with someone who's not his wife. And they're about to use it to discredit him and have him lose his race. And he, instead of shying away from it, addresses vulnerability and shame Mm. and talks about it in a way which is so human as a leader that everyone watching it uh, on TV or in the audience relates on some level. We all have things we feel vulnerable about. We all have things we have shame around. And to exclude others because they have shame or vulnerability is just to just to be destructive to ourselves. Mm. So that's my scene. I was amazed that I managed to find one at such short notice. No, I love that. I love it. I love it. And that's wow. a great one. Thank you for that. And thank you for being with us, Remy. And thank you for uh, all that you bring to the world. Mm, so good. The world's a better place because of a coach like you. Thank you. And the world is a better place because there are podcasts like yours. Thank you. If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartevera Tribe. The Cartevera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartevera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartevera Tribe is a membership like none other. 
You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cartavera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.